Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. Thank you. Paul, Thank nice you. to have you with me. So we're, we've got this in the diary, actually. And Paul, you have got a massive track record in the world of rugby, of course, as the Welsh rugby captain yeah. for quite a few years. Also... Too many years, some people say. <laughs> Too many years. The world record holder for the longest kick. Yes. Yeah. In an international test match. That's right. Yes. Multiple business ventures. Secretary of the Cardiff Business Club. Yeah. And a whole bunch of other businesses that you're involved with today. And so much we're going to have to talk about. Yeah, that's no, good. <laughs> They're not my businesses, unfortunately. The ones I'm involved with. But... Well, that's all good. So what would be great, if you don't mind, Paul, let's start with your journey, where life started for you, how you've ended up in sitting in my conservatory. Okay, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, we've got got a few minutes, haven't we? So, yeah, the the background is, family background is father Air Force, uh, father from Cardiff, mother from Swansea, where we're sitting doing this interview. And my father travelled around the world in the forces. You generally get moved around every couple of years, so... Had a very nomadic early life. Spent most of my early days traveling around RAF bases in England. So went to sort of Norwich area, uh, Bracknell, Berkshire, Sirencester, um, then uh, Hereford. And my parents uh, then decided when I was at the sort of uh, senior school age that I should go to boarding school and follow my two brothers who were ahead of me in in the school. So I went to boarding school in Hereford, Hereford Cathedral School. which uh, was great, uh, not necessarily a great sporting school. They did have their periods of, of uh, success. Interestingly, the first captain of the Welsh rugby team went to Hereford Cathedral oh. School, and I was the 100th captain of the Welsh rugby team. So there's a bit of nice symmetry, nice symmetry there, a bit of a link there. Um, I'm not sure if he had any more success than I did as the Welsh captain because we both lost many games. So there we are. Maybe it was the school's fault. Maybe. Ah. Always look for someone always look to blame. Blame, <laughs> blame it on the school. Um, the school was great. Um, academically for me, uh, possibly not the best move because I was very academically challenged, if that's the, the best way to put it. And uh, sport was always my interest and desire. So... Every lesson was, I was more interested when the break time was going to be because I wanted to go out in the yard and play football. Mm. Or I was thinking ahead to when the next game of rugby is or in the summer when our next cricket match is. Mm. So all of my school life really revolved around playing sport. And that actually did come to home to roost because I failed my A-levels miserably. Right. Okay. Um Wind the clock on a little bit. I then left school and had to resit my A-levels in the college just down the road in Sketty. Mm. Um, and uh, resat my A-levels. I'd almost given up the aspiration to, to play rugby because I realised I needed to uh, get some qualifications. My two brothers ahead of me had done well. My elder brother's a dentist. So, you know, clearly as, as the, the younger family, my member, my parents were probably thinking, oh dear, he's going to struggle in life. Um, managed to resit and got into Swansea University and quite in a bizarre sort of way, my aspiration to play rugby for Wales really came to fruition on the back of getting into Swansea University. Mm. And there are a number of journeys and steps that I went through uh, in that sort of university career that really gave me my opportunity on the world of rugby, Mm. which is quite quirky, given that I was academically challenged in school. Um, So went to Swansea University, who happened to have a very good rugby side and a very good rugby coach, a chap called Stan Adicott, who was, you know, world renowned as a rugby coach. He coached Swansea Rugby Club and they'd done well against, you know, Australian tourists and, you know, New Zealand tourists. And Stan was was known uh, in the world of, of rugby and coaching. 
and uh, managed to join Swansea University, uh, who had a great, great side, and we we did quite well in the University's Cup. We played against the likes of Exeter and Durham, and you know we we did well against those, and we got to the sort of the semi-finals of the University's competition. So all of a sudden, my I started to get recognised, and that then gave me the stepping stone to join a club called Neath, which nowadays, as we're talking now, is not considered one of the high profile clubs but in my day before the game of rugby went professional mm. it was one of the leading clubs in Wales wow. and Wales was made up of clubs such as Swansea, Neath, Llanethley, Cardiff, Newport, mm. Bridgend you know they were in their day they were clubs that were renowned right. in, in Welsh rugby and and world rugby and you know we used to have a lot of tourist teams come in from New Zealand and play against the club sides as oh. well as as Wales. So luckily I, I joined Neath at the right time. They were becoming a good side and uh, again managed to um, start to build a bit of a name for myself. Jonathan Davis was in that Neath wow. team. So Jonathan and I got capped within a matter of two weeks of each other. I got capped against France in uh, playing in the old Parc de France in, in Paris in 85 and Jonathan got capped two weeks later against England in Cardiff. So it was that was the start of the journey, and everything else that really has happened in my life has been uh, partly linked to my uh, international rugby days. So that's really been my my lifeline, really, in terms of business and earning a living. So mm -hmm. although rugby was amateur when I played, so yeah, didn't earn any time. money from it, but built up a profile and obviously contacts and connections which leads us on to where we are these days, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's quite frankly, someone has a, a Wikipedia page, you know, I mean, you know you've made it when you've got your Wikipedia page, right, Paul? Well, that's if you believe everything you read on <laughs> Wikipedia. So, so yeah, yeah. But let me, let's go back a little bit. Um, and, and thanks for sharing all that, because, I, you know, I think for a lot of people that would have seen you play rugby or who do business with you today, they look at you as being, you know, really successful in your field. And but it, obviously, you you know, it wasn't straightforward. It wasn't easy. No. You know, you, you had, as you said, those challenges academically yeah. and being the youngest of three boys. Yeah. Um, when you look back, did the position in the family and some of those academic challenges, did that kind of spur you on to be successful in rugby or was there was there no kind of connection between that, do you think? I don't really know, Jeanette, to be honest. I think in many ways it's just happened. You know, uh, I guess you make your own luck. There have been some lucky breaks in my life. I mentioned the university. Yes. Had that not happened, I don't think I would ever have played for Wales um, because, you know, getting into getting recognition to play in a top class team is about having the right profile and being in the right environment and being right place, right time. And there's no question when I was lucky enough to join Neath, uh, you know, I had to go for a trial and uh, managed to get in. Had I not joined Neath, I don't think I would have ended up playing for Wales. So, you know, I could have, it could have been one slight decision, turned the corner a different way or, you know, made a, a wrong turn and it might not have happened. So th there is, there is luck in it. And there's also when you're playing sport at that level, there is also the fact that you avoid injury. You know, those are lucky breaks, aren't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I guess it, uh, it can be sliding doors moments, can't they, where, like you say, you turn, you're at a crossroads and you go left or you go right, and actually that can set you on a certain path, yeah. can't it, really, which yeah. happened with you. The other side, though, there is a flip side, and, and I joined uh, the Welsh rugby team at a time when Wales was going through a very challenging time in terms of its international period because, as I mentioned earlier, rugby union was an amateur game. Yeah. And um, unlike rugby union in England, historically has always been played in the sort of the public schools. Um, you know, rugby in Wales is very much a working class game. And Wales suffered greatly, certainly in the latter part of the 80s with the defections to rugby league, which was a professional sport. So a lot of my contemporaries and a lot of the highest profile rugby players, I've mentioned Jonathan Davis, but also the likes of Terry Holmes, um, Adrian Hadley, Alan Bateman, names that perhaps you're not that well yeah, aware of, but yeah. certainly in the world of, yeah. of rugby are high profile people. They all got lured to rugby league and that put a massive drain on Welsh rugby's international capabilities. There were basically, well, I counted the other day, about 16 of Wales's best players went to rugby league over a period in my life of about three years. So you can imagine 
the impact of that on a small country, as it is anyway, when you're comparing it to, you know, England's player base, uh, that had a massive impact. So therefore, our results were pretty, pretty poor in those days. But there are reasons for that. It's interesting because when we met for, for a coffee and a, a kind of the first time we got to know each other, probably about a month or so ago, yeah. wasn't it? And I remember you were telling, explaining that to me and I didn't realise the kind of the, how, how things have gone full circle almost with league, league and union. And, yeah. and, and so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you're right in what you're saying. Actually, context is important, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's no question it, it did impact. We, we started to have some success in sort of 1980. Uh, where we won the uh, the triple crown as it was uh, or still is I guess and the five nations championship and started to build up a bit of momentum and then all of a sudden we lost a shed load of players again and that then brought us back down and you know change of coaches you know one thing about Wales is our media is very you know we do get we do get perhaps a disproportionate level of media attention as rugby players that makes sense yeah, but yeah. rugby is synonymous with with Wales isn't it so there was lots of criticism about the structure of, of the, the, the 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 game in Wales about the coach is he the right coach so you know even though we were amateur we were still treated almost like professionals yes so still and that was not always easy to come to terms is when you're actually trying to hold down a living and feed yeah. your family and you mentioned some some pretty big names there um are, are they people that you're still in touch with, you know, through that that world of rugby and sport and the connections and the friendships you make, I would imagine those bonds are pretty are pretty tight and last a long time. Well, absolutely. I mean, the one thing about sport in general, and I'm a big believer and passionate about sport and that every child should have an opportunity to play sport, and I'm a big believer in team sport, you build relationships and bonds for life. You know, many of those players now have returned back to Wales Obviously, the game of rugby went professional in 95. So some of them had only been in rugby league for two or three years. And then as soon as rugby union went professional, a lot of them came back to rugby union. Even though they professionalised them by going to rugby league, when, when rugby union opened itself up, well, they all came back. Jonathan Davis came back. Yeah. Alan Bateman came back. Scott Gibbs came back. Scott Quinnell came back. Roland Phillips came back. So they all basically came back and ended their careers where they started yeah, yeah. in rugby union. Yeah, well, and if truth be known, they didn't really want to go to rugby league. Yeah. They didn't really. They went for, for financial reasons. Yeah. And you can't blame them. No, no, not at all. So when they, when those guys were coming back, were they welcome with open arms or was there animosity of almost, well, hang on, you betrayed us. You went over there and now now all of a sudden you want you want back in no, our game? No, I, I don't think there would. I mean, there might have been some people who were yeah. resentful of it, but ultimately, you know, most rugby players at that level had... Uh, offers to go to rugby league. I yeah. had an offer from Wigan. Right. I chose not to go. Yeah. Um, I had an offer to, if I, I think we discussed it a month ago, I had an offer to go and play American football as a kicker. I chose not to. That was my choice. I had the opportunity to go. So I think most people at that level had opportunities and it's just their circumstances mm. might have been different and there were reasons why some went and some didn't. Yeah, 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 fair enough. So actually it was all quite amicable. There wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, no. Yeah. No, good luck to them. You, yeah. you know, you get on with it, you know. Absolutely, yeah. opportunities come knocking. Yeah, and you no, no, choice, absolutely. You? So yeah. let's talk about the kicking. Right, Because okay. <laughs> we can't do this interview without yeah. talking about the kicking, can we, yeah. clearly? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of kicking in rugby, but yeah. in particular in your world. So take us back to that test match, 1986, wasn't it? Five yeah. Nations. Yeah. Just talk us through the, uh, if you can if you can wind your, your memory back to, to that game and, and yeah. sort of that, that monumental kick where you got that record. Yeah. What's going through your mind? You know, what was the, what was the sort of outcome of that? Obviously, not just in terms of the game, but how that impacted your career because it is something that you are very well known for obviously you're known for lots of other things but yeah. in particular that so just take us back to 1986 Paul yeah. if you don't mind well I'll take it back before then I was I was always a uh, a kicker in even in my school days and the team I played for we weren't a great you know rugby rugby team uh, but I'd always been a kicker. Interestingly, I started my early life playing football. I mentioned I was in, yes. my father was in the Royal Air Force. So I grew up in Bracknell, Berkshire, as a sort of a seven, eight, nine-year-old, went to a local school. Rugby wasn't in the, in the schools there, <laughs> no. you know. So I played football as a kid, grew up playing football. 
so was always a member of a football team and that's I think where the the kicking you know that's where I really learned to kick a ball obviously a, a football is different to a rugby ball but as all had always grown up playing rugby as well my father was in Cardiff rugby club set up played for the Royal Air Force so rugby was always there as well and I was known as a uh, and a kicking fullback rather than an out and out running fullback. Um, and that was my strength. I guess if I didn't have the kicking capabilities, my name probably would never have been on the top of the selector's sheet because uh, you know I was known as a, as a kicker who could perhaps get, get teams out of trouble. Yeah. If we were struggling to score tries, then at least maybe there was someone who could kick some goals when we got penalties and yeah. stuff. So that's, yeah. that's why I got in. That particular game, um, we were playing against Scotland uh, in Cardiff and actually Scotland were, uh, were pretty threatening and, and probably pretty dominant throughout the whole game. Mm. And the actual incident where the penalty was awarded was we had been defending our, our own line. Um, we won a, I think we won a line out or something and the ball came back to Jonathan Davis who tried to clear our, our, our half. And as he kicked it, he got elbowed in the face by Finlay Calder, the Scottish captain. Mm. Luckily, the referee saw it because in those days there were no camera, you know, no yeah. sort of match officials analysing for foul play. Yeah. It was what the referee saw in the moment. He saw this incident and he awarded a penalty where Jonathan's kick hit the field of play, which is the spot that I kicked the, the goal on. And I've always been a better long range kicker than a short kicker. And... If there are people listening to this podcast who are golfers, I'll use an analogy. It, when, you, when you make a putt on the, a, a green in golf, um, the shorter putts are always worse for many than the longer ones. And that's mm -hmm. partly because the expectation is that you'll get a short putt. Whereas if you're 15, 20 foot away from the hole, well, if you get it, that's a yeah. bonus but you're not expected to get it and I had the same philosophy in kicking okay. I was far more relaxed and therefore when you're more relaxed you're less tense you tend to then go through the the correct you know technique of kicking a ball successfully and that was exactly what happened that particular day this was a long way out you know whatever it was 70 64 yards 64.2 meters, meters I read on, yeah. on Wikipedia well in those days 70 <laughs> yards eight and a half inches <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, when when the penalty was awarded, I I grabbed the ball and said to the captain, "I'm going to have a go at goal." And he didn't say not. So I I did. I lined it up and and I struck it okay, and it went over. So another day, it might not have gone over. Amazing, so. amazing. And I mean, obviously, when that happened, what was the what's going through your mind? Is it just euphoria? Are you, are you actually just in the moment so much that almost everything else around you blurs out? Or are you absolutely kind of aware of the crowd and the pressure and everything that's happening in the... Uh, well, when you, when, you, um, when you select to go for a kick, you then try and get yourself into the groove. Yeah, yeah you yeah. try and blank out everything else that is going on around you. But that doesn't mean to say you can totally blank it out. You're mindful of the circumstance and the situation was that we uh, we had just I think managed to get one point ahead of Scotland even though they were more dominant during most of the game we'd managed to uh, to get one point ahead but I knew the importance of this kick because that that then meant that we would have stretched the lead even further yeah um, but I also knew if I missed the kick that it would put Scotland right back in their half and get away from our half, basically, mm -hmm. which psychologically territory in rugby is quite a big factor of the game, uh, particularly, more, well, it's always been that case, but perhaps more so then. So I knew even if I missed it, it was going to put them back in their, their mm -hmm. half. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was very relaxed about it. And uh, yeah, once it went over, obviously delighted, but then you then got to, start all over again yeah and the whistle goes and you've got to start all over again yeah, so yeah, yeah yeah fantastic so let's talk about the mindset of sport then okay. and high performance and and how big a big a deal that is because you've touched on it a couple of times in just what you were just talking through then so having that winning mindset how do you how do you develop that is that something that's innate is it something that you work on is it something that you work on individually as a team you know let's 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 just explore that a little bit yeah i i i don't really know i don't really know where to go with that one because um i mentioned the school i went to hereford cathedral yeah. school and we weren't a great rugby school by any means and we used to play against uh schools 
in England, such as Gloucester schools and Worcester schools. And I remember at the age of 13, 14, playing against those guys and they, they had beards at 14. You know, we, we, were, we were midgets and we used to get absolutely hammered. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll put it into context. Uh, we lost one game uh, against a school called Belmont Abbey. Many of the team from Belmont live just down the road and are good friends of mine right. in Langland Golf Club. So we'll be known to Chris and, and uh, some of your friends. They beat us 114 nil. Uh, another game then, when I was age 18, we played Christ College Brecon and we lost 104 nil. But I never lost interest and appetite in the game. I just loved the physical confrontation of rugby, even though around me there were people who perhaps had less of a an appetite for getting hammered, but yeah. I never lost that desire and, I, and rugby was my life, mm. partly through my brothers and my father's sort of own rugby, you know, desire. So I always, even though we lost regularly, you know, we didn't lose regularly 104 nil, but, no, it, but we rarely won. And yeah. it, you know, uh, we even celebrated um, reducing the score the following year later against Belmont Abbey, who they beat us 114 nil, we managed to contain them to 35 nil the following year and we were celebrating it was it was lap of honor stuff so you know that sort of puts it into context yes. so so i've come into the world of sort of high level rugby having come through some pretty low levels of expectation mm. so um and and much of then i guess how it all changed for me was joining neath where there were people in in the neath sort of set up the management who had a had a mindset about winning, you know, putting it into, into context that, you know, this is a team effort and, and together we're going to make this work. So we're going to train hard together. There's going to be no, you know, no gaps in our preparation. Uh, and if you, you know, if you don't commit to the training and dedication, you're letting the rest of the side down. That wasn't a mindset in school because sport in schools was just it was a hobby and a bit yeah. of fun, really, yeah. wasn't it? Whereas once you got into the sort of the higher level, then that whole professionalism, that approach, that attitude, the mindset then started to come into it. And, and that grows with you. The more you get into it, then you, you, know, you take that on board. Everything about your lifestyle changes. You, know, you go from changing your attitude to perhaps you know, drinking on weekends and you know, even diet, albeit it's fair to say back in the sort of 80s and early 90s, we were some way behind the rest of the world. I'm talking about New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, in terms of their outlook to sport. They were far more professional, right. even compared to England rugby. Yeah. You know, we, we in, the, in the Northern Hemisphere were at a sort of a lower level. But we learned an awful lot. And, and if you've noticed the way the game has developed since it went professional, we've had a massive influx of overseas coaches and sports analysts and performance people who've come from the Southern Hemisphere because they were at that level 15, 20 years before us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's it, isn't it? I suppose surround yourself with people that are ahead of where you are so they can yeah. lift you up and, and you know, yeah. take you. I think the downside and the, the, the sad thing about it was that, you know, had we had all of that knowledge back then when I was playing, we would have been a much better nation because Wales does have the passion but you can have passion is one thing that counts for very little when you're actually coming up against some of the most elite high performing rugby players in the world. And I'm talking about New Zealand, you know, we played New Zealand in the 87 World Cup and they were so professional. It was unbelievable. So it was little wonder that we lost by 50 points. You know, it was a, it was a surprise to people in Wales, but actually people in Wales just grew up in a culture that was actually, well, you know, we, we trained a couple of days a week and, you know, play the game on the Saturday and we'll go out and have a few beers. Different mindset. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and it did take Wales a lot of time to get used to that, mm. come to terms with that. No, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I think, you know, you, you talked about the team winning together. You had a win together or, you, you, you know, everyone loses sort of thing. Yeah. But how much would you spend working on yourself after a game, you know, sort of analysing it versus sitting there together as a team, looking how you, you, you know, you, you kind of gel together? Yeah, it's it, um, from a... From from a perspective of Neath Rugby Club, uh, Neath had a manager called Brian Thomas, who was um, in the world of, of rugby and Welsh rugby, wouldn't have been seen as everybody's cup of tea. He was a first-class graduate from Cambridge University, metallurgist, 
He was a very intelligent man, um, but seen by many as being a bit of a brute of a rugby right. player. He was a, he was about six foot four and a half, absolute monstrous man. Played for Wales, was a Neath one of the members of the Neath forwards, um, but he had a vision uh, that he needed to develop the way we approach rugby in Wales, and he was. I think I think Neath were the first club to actually start um, having individual performance analysis. Right. So after every game, they had someone who had videoed the match or looked at the TV cuttings and actually broken down every player's performance by position and by um, by number. So we'd go into after the the game on the Saturday, we'd go into training on a Monday evening, and we'd all be given a report about. This is what you did in terms of, you know, tackles made, missed tackles, you know, ball in hand, how many meters you made with the ball. You know, if you were a kicker, successful kicks, unsuccessful kicks, yardage gains, territory, ball in play. That's what we had, but it was written on, a sh you know, sheets of paper. Yeah. So it was very basic, but it was the start of analysis and performance analysis. Still streets behind what they were probably doing in the Southern Hemisphere, but nonetheless, it was a start. And therefore, you do then start to, you know, you reflect on that when people have actually shown you the data. If you don't know what you're looking at, yeah, you'll, you'll watch some report. But because when I was playing, other than internationally, there weren't many club games that were live on TV. Sure, yeah. It was only starting to come in in the sort of the 80s yeah. and, uh, you know, late 80s. Yeah, lots of changes happened in, in the world of sport in general yeah. and, and rugby in particular. Can we just touch on, on women's sport as well, yeah. actually? Because I think, obviously, we've just had the, you know, the, the Women's England win the, yeah. uh, win the Euros, which was just phenomenal. Um, and I think, you know, women's rugby has yeah. really gained, gaining traction now. So just sort of interested to hear your perspective, really, on, you know, what do you think about women's rugby? What are the things that kind of, um, I suppose, are needed to continue to take that sport forward? And, you know, should it be compared against the men's game or should it just stand on its own merit? You know, because there's a lot around around sort of diversity, inclusion, gender, et cetera, at the moment, isn't there? And I think yeah. rugby is a, is, a, is a prime example of a sport where women have really, you know, taken the mantle in a, in a sport that possibly wouldn't be initially expected given the physicality of the game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just your thoughts. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think generally sport, women's sport, it's fabulous to see. I have two daughters. Yes. Uh, I, I also have a son. My daughter plays uh, hockey for Wales ladies. Um, and I know the benefits of sport. Um, I've grown up in sport. Um, I've always tried to instill that in my kids that whatever they do, they must be part of a, an environment where sport is is high on the agenda because mm -hmm. of all the values of sport you know and i think when i think what you learn through sport is you learn about teamwork you learn about respect for your peers and your opponents uh, you learn how uh, to deal with failure mm -hmm. and success and that's equally as important to to learn how to deal with success and not become too arrogant about it because one thing about sport is you can come down very quickly yes. and all sports people will tell you that they've been at the lowest of the low and they've been at the highest of the high and the margins are minute. Uh, so sport uh, for women, I think, is brilliant. I think what's happened with with the football with England is is tremendous for all women uh, and all aspects of, of sport and life. And, um, uh, you know, long may that continue. And I've been I've been working, I work for Sport Wales, so I was on the sort of the side of the government. It's a government funded body that's trying to promote sport. And one of the challenges we, we recognise and we are aware of is maintaining girls' interest in sport at the age of sort of 14, 15, 16 is a real challenge. And a lot of that comes down to the changes in, you know, hormonal Absolutely. changes. Um, and I think what, hopefully what, you know, England's success in the Euros has done is will will be to give those girls who are perhaps thinking about other things in life that know it's important to keep that going because you get an awful lot out of it. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say that you won't have other interests, but be part of a team, be part of a sporting environment if you can. Not everyone's going to play for England. Not everyone's going to play internationally, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's what other benefits you get out of it. Yeah. And those girls will be friends for life. And that's a, a part of the journey you want to be on as well, isn't it? Oh, 100%. As to, as to rugby, I don't really think it matters what sport. 
I hate this comparison about, you know, women's football and men's football because basically it's football. It's just played, one game's played by men and one is played by women, you know, in, in uh, and rugby's the same. You know, it's the same rules. In men's rugby, you've got some monstrous men who are six foot ten. You don't generally have six foot ten women. doesn't matter. The principle's the same, isn't it? Yes. The physicality is proportionate. So I think that's that's really what matters. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I, and I think I, I agree with you. I think any sport any or even any physical activity, you know, and if you can be part of a team, then fantastic. Yeah. But even if you're you're not a team player and you're more of a solo, you know, um, so even someone that goes for a walk every day, you know, yeah. I just think the... The, the actual release that you get from physical exercise and how it helps your mental well-being is just phenomenal, actually. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the pandemic has exposed all of the issues that we have in, in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just contained to the UK. This is global. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can get out and you can have a walk or you can have a run or you can, you know, hit a tennis ball or kick a football and throw a frisbee with other people, you get so much out of it. You have a bit of banter, you have a laugh. Yeah. Isn't it nice to laugh and smile? And, you know, it's not about winning. It's not about winning all the time. It's nice to win, but actually it doesn't really matter. Mm. You know, it's getting that buzz out of it. And I think that's important. Yeah, give it a go. So let, let's let's just change change tack a little bit, if, we don't, if you don't mind, yeah. Paul. Um, because obviously you've had a very successful career in rugby, which you've enjoyed and you've loved. Mm -hmm. And there's other aspects. Most of, of it. Most of it. Most <laughs> yeah. of it. Um, and there's other aspects that we'll, we'll pick up on. Um, but also, you, you're very successful in the world of business as well. So you've had sort of almost two sides to, to kind of your professional life, if you like. So what you've taken from the world of sport and how you've applied it to business, has that helped you hugely? Or is that, do you see that the two not being, not being connected at all? Um. I, I think that there obviously are connections. I think, uh, I mean, I haven't run any successful businesses myself. You know, I, I've, I was tournament director for Rugby World Cup, which was a massive project and a massive job. But I'm not the owner of that business. It was, I was employed by, you know, Rugby World Cup to yeah. deliver a, an event. Um, and there were lots of uh, aspects of that that called upon the skills that you've learned, that I learned through my my journey, if you like. And the most important skill is actually teamwork. And, you know, when you're pu pulling together a, a project of a tournament, like we've just had the Euros. Yeah. Okay, so that was a tournament over, what, five weeks? Mm. Multiple venues, multiple teams, you know, dealing with things like the policing, the stewarding, the crowds, the venues, teams in hotels. You have a team of people and you've got to work with those people because there's one ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to run a tournament. And you've got to put perhaps personal um, issues or any conflicts behind. And that's what you learn in business, you know, uh, or you learn and, and, and you've learned through sport as well. Because, you know, I've played in teams and I wouldn't necessarily say that every one of those team members are people that I would want to go out and have a meal with on a regular basis. Yes. But, you know, for the purpose of actually winning that match, we played together and we worked together. Yeah. yeah. And you get that in business. You know, you've been in business at a much higher level than me. And you will have found that there's not everybody in the organizations you've had to deal with that would be your bosom pals. Yes. <laughs> but you you work to the end goal. You work to the end goal for the cause. And the cause is running a successful business or delivering a successful tournament. So I've. I've always learned to respect people, respect their views. Um, and if there are conflicts between people, because often part of being, a, I think, whether it's a good captain or a good chief exec of a company is making sure that those personal issues and conflicts are put to one side. Yeah. And it's knowing how to manage that. You know, conflict resolution is a big part of being a manager, you know, whether it's a small team of team of girls you know trying to win the euros you know to be a manager of a group of young girls is 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 challenging you know or a group of young boys is challenging so you've got to know how to deal with that and i think as long as you've got that that mindset whatever you're doing and whatever business you're involved with that will carry you through so those are the those are the sort of the the experiences i've had 
that I like to take into the world of, of business now when I'm acting for the clients that I act for. Yeah. Is, yeah. It, and, and actually, you, you do better with people you get on with. Yeah, you know, and life's too short, isn't it? I mean, you get yeah. to a certain maybe maybe I'm having a midlife crisis, Bobby. <laughs> you do get to a certain point in your life, in your career, and or wherever you are in your sporting life, where you sort of I think at a certain age you, you're much more self-aware. Yeah. You're much more clear on probably what you want. Although you were very clear in terms of what you wanted to achieve in rugby, so so that, you know, but not necessarily everyone has that clarity no. when they're younger. But I think when you get to a certain age as well, you, you realise that you have choices about who you do business with, who you spend your time with, yeah. whether that's socially or from a business point of view. So, you know, it is important. And I think, do you want to just talk about what you're doing now? Because you've got loads of interesting um, yeah. projects that you're involved in, businesses that you work with. You're yeah. a big connector. Networking yeah. is a yeah. massive part of what you do today, isn't it, as yeah. well? So let's just talk about that because I think it's interesting for people listening, people who may be in the world of sport that are maybe thinking about what could they do for business or maybe are in business and thinking, oh, actually, hang on a minute, maybe I need to bring some of these sporting elements into what I'm doing. Yeah, well, um, having um, having finished the Rugby World Cup job, which was, so basically I was tournament director for the 99 World Cup, which yes. took place, Wales were the official host, but the games were played in England, Scotland, Ireland, France, as well as Wales. Mm. And um, that finished in 2000. I then stepped away from the world of rugby, partly because rugby was going through some quite challenging times. It had just gone professional in 95 across the world. So you can imagine uh you know when you thrust professionalism onto a sport globally there are going to be some countries that engage it quicker than others mm. and perhaps are able financially to deal with it better than others and um you know wales as a country uh, as as i mentioned earlier on is 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 very much economically challenged compared to our counterparts across the seven bridge sure. yeah, yeah for economic reasons um, but when the game went professional, you can imagine all of a sudden every rugby player in Wales thought they were going to be professional and starting to earn big money. Yes. Well, that isn't the reality. So rugby in Wales went through some challenges. I mentioned I played for Neath yes. as a club. Well, Welsh rugby had to restructure and reduce and go from 14 or so top class club sides, mm. such as Neath Swansea, and create five regions. So reducing the uh, the professional resources to five you know businesses which they thought were going to help to take wales forward on the international stage and they were going to be able to manage it financially so you know that's that's what had to happen there i decided to stay out of rugby during a very difficult period because i didn't want to get involved when it was being difficult and there was lots of politics and lots of things yeah. going on so i went into the world of headhunting i was yes. a recruiter a headhunter and did that for a few years and then got asked to go uh, back into the Welsh Rugby Union to help them put together their involvement with the 2007 Rugby World Cup. Mm. France were the hosts. I got involved because of my 99 experience and I stayed then in rugby until 12 years ago. I worked for the Welsh Rugby Union uh, and the Ospreys but mainly on the business side of it. So yeah. I did the Rugby World Cup thing with the union, but I also got involved in commercially uh, aspects of it. So getting sponsorship deals in place, um, putting league sponsorship deals, dealing with um, sort of merchandise and hospitality, the non-coaching side. Mm. I've never been really into coaching. Did that at, uh, with the Welsh Union, then joined the Ospreys. <clears throat> but uh, 12 years ago then, uh, left the Ospreys and decided that I'm going to use my contacts that I've built up yeah. over the years and that's one thing you do in rugby is you build up a network uh, and you build up friendships um, and I thought I could develop a business consultancy where I act for a handful of companies yeah. and use my connections to facilitate business opportunities for them and that's what I do now so I have a number of organizations and if I'm allowed to mention them oh, you can I mention whoever you want yeah, yeah um, a big big insurance brokerage group called Towergate who, who will, will be known across the UK I, I've been working with them for 12 years um, a banking consultancy called bank brokers who benchmark companies bank charges to a local law firm Douglas Jones Mercer uh, to a pensions business called quantum to a construction firm called R&M Williams and I apply the same principles for each of those, regardless that they're different sectors, because 
business is business and you do business with people you get on with. Absolutely. And I've always believed that I actually would get on with most people. Uh, one thing about business is, as you will know, the hardest thing is getting through the door. Yeah. And if you can get through the door, you've got a chance. And, and that's the way I, I've structured my business. So I, I basically uh, work alongside a handful of experts within each of those organizations. My bit is I get them through the door and do the initial facilitation work to you know, make sure there's synergy and there's relationships. And then once it gets into the specifics of a banking consultancy project mm. then i've got the experts who are the banking experts to do yeah. it i couldn't do that but what i've done is i've facilitated that opportunity and i know from um speaking to lots of uh my colleagues uh, who played rugby then and i know a lot of the players who are coming out of rugby now are moving into those types of environments because mm -hmm. people can relate to sports people who've played at the top level it yeah. does help having a name because you know names open doors but nonetheless i think they value the the respect and the principles that they've applied to rugby to try to win business mm, yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean it's, it's interesting because i have interviewed i've interviewed rory underwood he's okay. been on the podcast in fact i was speaking to him literally two days ago because yeah, okay. uh, he has a business called wingman yeah. which goes into businesses and looks at you know how you create high performing teams high performing environments yeah. and, and then the strategy side of things so again you know utilizing his experience in the RAF and um, and in rugby to apply to business. Slightly different model to what you're doing, yeah. but nonetheless, a lot of the best practice yeah. um, in there. Um, Mike Ruddock has been yeah. on as well. Um, yeah. You know, so actually I, I'm fascinated by the mindset, the high performance, bouncing back from adversity, failure, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, it's not just coping with the wins and not getting too like big headed about things, but at the same time being able to yeah. deal with the knockbacks. And I think what how you're applying your skills is massively helpful for people to hear yeah. because it might make other people think, oh, actually, that could be an avenue I go down as well. Yeah. Um, how hard was it leaving rugby? you because it's such a big part of your life and and what you're doing now was it was it a difficult decision or did had you naturally got to that stage um i think it probably naturally got to that stage um but of course rugby wasn't everything of my life when i played because i was amateur i had to work of course yes now yeah. yes that's so true. you know i went to university i got a degree in microbiology which bizarrely is viruses and bacteria so all of a sudden, during the pandemic, I become an expert of, <laughs> of, of viruses. Uh, so I worked for Glaxo Pharmaceuticals while I was playing rugby for Wales. Um, and I worked for various businesses, worked for the Welsh Development Agency, which was a government body trying to attract businesses into Wales. So I've always had to work. So I've always had external distractions, if that makes sense. Yeah. So rugby was obviously a key part of my life because, yes. you know, playing for your country was was a big part of my journey and my aspiration but I'd always had to work as well yes so yeah. that's always been very much part of it yeah. so so I had to I had to I shouldn't say juggle work around my rugby commitments <laughs> it was it was a bit of both bit of yeah both, yeah and when you look back, what would is there anything that you would do differently next time? I know it's a, it's a hard question because, of course, at the end of the day, you know, your journey's your journey and you've had, you know, highs, lows, good things, you know, more challenging things. But anything particular that you might change? Well, I've thought about this and I thought maybe if I'd worked harder in school, things might have turned out differently. But you know what? They wouldn't and I'd have never have played for Wales because my Welsh uh, aspirations were achieved through a bizarre situation where I managed to get into university. I struggled to get into university, but I managed to get into university and it was really Swansea was the stepping stone to me playing for Wales. Mm. And without that, I would never have played rugby, I'm sure, at the yeah. top level. So can you have regrets? You can think about it, but actually it is what it is, you know? It is what it is. And what I would say to people, you know, who, who may be listening, if you've got a, an aspiration, go for it. And as long as you're true to yourself, you'll need some lucky breaks. And there's lots of people who have been far better at, at sport and rugby who've been unlucky mm. in life. And that's really tragic. Probably you had more dedication and more commitment and more skill perhaps than others who've just had a bad injury or something has happened in their life that has turned them off. 
and that's awful isn't it so you know don't have regrets and, and do what you can and go for it mm, I think that's really great advice because there's a lot of people that have dreams they want to do something maybe travel or start a business or get into a sport whatever it might be maybe have a family you know it doesn't matter whether it's personal stuff or business but somehow there's a blocker there to stop stop them even trying you know the yeah. fear of failure fear of judgment whatever it may be and I'm 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 like you I think just give it a go you know because then whichever way it it, it plays out at least you'll have tried and you'll yeah. have learned something and you might you know you might get, you know win and and be you know be the person that you want to be and achieve all of your dreams but yeah. if you're not there's a great saying isn't it I think it was Zig Ziglar that said you don't have to be you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. To be great yeah. And I think that's that's quite a, yeah. a you know a nice way of looking at it. And that's exactly yeah. what you're saying. You know, yeah. don't don't hold yourself back. Just do something that you want to do. Yeah, yeah. God, very very profound today, Paul. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, people think I'm deep. Are I'm, you? Well, no, I didn't think I was. But... <laughs> Well, there we go. Maybe Obviously, I am. you are. Maybe you are. I am. No, yeah. but it's very sound advice. I think that's great, actually. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, I mean, we could chat all afternoon, couldn't we? But I'm very mm. conscious of your time. You are a busy man, after all. Um, as much as we're sitting here in the lovely in sunshine, the lovely it's done that often in Swansea. Exactly. We might have to crack open a, a beer or something later. But anyway, um, yeah, so if you, if you look back at your kind of, you know, illustrious career life in sport and business and everything that you've, you've kind of gone through, can you think of... Um, the best piece of advice you've been given or a really good piece of advice that's kind of stayed with you and you've you know you've kind of drawn down on a number of times yeah that's that's a difficult one uh because you you pick up so many bits yeah. of advice <laughs> from people and uh, you know, you're you're given lots of advice whether it's all relevant and worthwhile is 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 debatable i i think probably the best bit of advice is be true to yourself you know and uh, you know um and also treat people the way you would like to be treated. Mm. And I think those those values, I think, are key um, because I have seen the other side of it. And, you know, I've come across some pretty nasty people in my time and they're not for me. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to um, to give people the respect that you would want yourself, whether that's on the sporting field. As I mentioned, you know, treat success, you know, in the same way as you, you treat defeat because it will come round at some point in your life mm. and knowing how to deal with that you know the english girls who won euro on on sunday it could have been so different mm. and they would have had to have dealt with the real trauma particularly on the stage that they were on they've never been in that stage before in front of eighty-five thousand yeah. people which is phenomenal Absolutely. so you know perhaps they can reflect on how the german girls would have felt you know, because at some point it will come their way. And I think that's what you need to learn in life. Yeah, absolutely. And there's highs and lows in everything, whether it's getting a job, being sacked, being made redundant. Be firm, be committed, but always respect the people around you, except the ones, obviously, who perhaps don't deserve the respect. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's great. And, and also, I think, as you say, failure... You're gonna. We're all going to fail at some point. We're all going to lose at something. Yeah. You know, if, arguably, if you're not, you're not trying. You're in your comfort zone. You're not pushing out to to actually have the chance of of extraordinary. And and I think you're right. Having that mindset around, you know, when it's good, great, enjoy it. But when things aren't so great, you you have to come through that. You have to have the maturity to be able yeah. to deal with both sides of the coin, don't you? Yeah, and put it into context. Yes. Yeah. You know, maybe that's a that's another good one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can you can come home after a bad day on the rugby field and throw your boots around and. But then you realise, well, actually, there's people far worse off than you. Hundred percent, and you yeah. know, someone else might be in a well in a worse situation where you know it's a life or death situation. Oh, and, and actually, you know, yeah. I often say, I mean, maybe it's not a good thing to say. I say, well, no one, no one's died. You know, anything by comparison to that has got to be good, absolutely. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, so, um, so my next, my next deep question, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> is can you think of any bad advice you've been given or advice that you know maybe it was, maybe it was poor and you never took it actually because you and you were glad that you didn't you ignored it yeah no i did i did ignore something uh once there was an opportunity i mentioned earlier the game was was amateur in in wales uh there was a business opportunity that came my way from a chap um who was a welshman who had aspirations to give rugby players in wales the chance to still earn a living but perhaps have much more time off in a week 
to be able to dedicate to training and performance. And and the you know the the concept was brilliant. Um, sadly, uh, it turned out that the guy was a little bit of a con man, and I got lured into it. I was you know obviously high profile in Wales. Uh, got lured into it. I didn't take advice from other people. Some people had said you know perhaps you need to check him out. I didn't because I just saw this was an opportunity to, well, it was too good to be true as it yeah. turned out, but it was yeah. t too too great an opportunity to miss. Uh, and that actually was tragic because my wife was expecting our first child at the time. Yeah. And I went through basically four months without pay. And uh, I was a, a little bit embarrassed to sort of say to anybody that it had gone wrong. Yeah. Eventually they all found out because I needed a bit of financial support. So yeah, yeah hey, look, I've made mistakes. and But sometimes it's easy to be caught up in the whole, you know, uh, the roller coaster of, you know, people offering you an opportunity and you think it's right. Seek sound advice, that's what I would. and. Uh, perhaps speak to your friends and ask them to do some of your due diligence yeah, on your behalf. Yeah, no, that's, you know. that, is good, that is good advice. And how did you come back from that then? But that must have been a terrible situation. Well, that was pretty tough going as, yeah, uh, as we just had our first child. And, uh, uh, but luckily I managed, again, this is because I was lucky. I, I've got some contacts and uh, had the profile. Uh, I got offered an opportunity to get me through a period of, you know, 18 months to get myself back on uh, feet, back on the ground, and uh, and it worked out well in the end. So, uh, you know, through adversity, you know, positive things came out of it. So. Yeah, and you learn a lot about yourself at the yeah. times like that, don't you? Yeah. Your wife must have been very forgiving as well. You're a good uh, team together. She, she was very forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I like to think I paid her back. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you're still together. <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, she, yeah. she must be keeping you on the team yeah. for now, Paul, anyway, yeah. at least. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, this podcast called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. So when you think of that, what does it mean to you, Paul? Um, brave, bold, brilliant. I think brave and bold to me means, you know, if you've got a desire for something, go for it. Give it as good as you can. Um, it may not necessarily work out the way you wanted, but at least you can turn around in 10, 15 years time and say, I've given it a go. Mm -hmm. I did my best. Um, brilliant. Brilliant is in in one's opinion, isn't it? You don't necessarily have to be the highest profile sports person to have been brilliant. Or, you know, there are brilliant people out there who are under the radar, who get no recognition, but they've done brilliant, amazing things. So it's, it's in context, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's what matters. Fantastic, yeah, I love that. Great answer. Maybe. Don't know. Don't Wonderful. Know. So, Paul, where can people find you then? What's the best way, best way for people to connect with you? Because I'm sure people listen to this, they might want to get involved with some of the business side of things. They might want to, you know. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I, I'm on yeah. LinkedIn. Um, I yeah, I, I use LinkedIn mainly as my sort of go-to platform for for connecting with people. Good. So check Paul out on LinkedIn. Obviously, we'll put all of them, all of your contact details anyway, out yeah. on the show notes and what have you. But thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the chat. Pleasure. No, it's been good to get off my chest some of the <laughs> the, the past. It's like a therapy session. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm. Yeah. No, I needed those when I was playing. Yeah. After losing 118 nil. Yeah. <laughs> But look how far you've come. It's amazing. But no, thank you very much for that. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.